Good morning and welcome to HR Tech Weekly, One Step Closer with Stacy Harris and John Sumter. Good morning, Stacy. Good morning, John. How are you doing? Um, you, you know, this is an Eeyore morning. It's the the fires are back up again around me, so so we're breathing chunky air and everything is a little out of sorts. Yeah, yeah, it's really hard. I know. I I went to the news. They were saying there's two fires that are only 10% contained, and yeah, I can't imagine um, days on end, which is what you're going through, of sort of skies that look, um, you know, like what we see during sort of a day or so of of really bad, you know, hurricane weather and thunderstorms and those kind of things. So yeah, no, I am. Um, we're hoping everybody stays safe out there. Here in North Carolina, we're um, starting to get nice fall weather. So you guys are welcome to come this way anytime you want. It is it is crisp um, weather with the apples are out and the sun is shining. Um, but um, I, you know, I don't knock on wood somewhere. We're not through hurricane season quite yet. So we'll, we'll wait and see what happens there. So um, are you uh, be, are you able with all that's going on outside of your environment to sort of focus on what you're working on right now in preparation for sort of the big fall events that you're going to be going to? Um, have you been able to, to take a little bit of um, time and energy to, to go, dive deep into some of that artificial intelligence work that you've been doing? Yeah, yeah, that's all there is to do because you can't go outside. So it's a good time to be working all the time. Um yeah, the, the 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 stuff for the fall conference season is really coming together. Um, I'm looking at um, building another watch list and talking about um, the emerging ideas in artificial intelligence, which are almost at the edges of intelligibility. You know, we were talking before the show about about how you do thousands of scenarios and then pick the scenarios that best match your circumstances. And that sounds like a nightmare of a spreadsheet problem, but it's a kind of a trivial thing for computing to do. And so, Mm -hmm. so that means we need to learn how to read these graphs that show us the relationship between the various scenarios so that we can plan something and do it. And that's that, how do you get people savvy enough with the technology so that they can do do something is a question that I'm looking pretty hard at. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, you know, it's interesting because this kind of, what we used to call it branching back in the learning days, right? But this is like branching on steroids um, concept with the, the idea of, of data behind it, not just the possibilities, right? Um, but an area where you guys, um, the market might actually look to get some sense of this is in the gaming industry. The gaming industry has been building out these kind of models, at least, for um, forever. Um, now the question is, can you add real data in them versus sort of what you would consider to be sort of rural engines that these gaming industries have put forward, right? But I think there, there's probably some interesting um, intersections between that market and what you're talking about. Um, oh, I'm, start, I'm starting also, to see it. I'm starting to see it. Yeah. Virtual reality is becoming a thing, and and it's becoming a thing based on better thinking about skills and their relationship to each other than is currently the case in the big places that are thinking about skills. Interesting. Yeah. So, so yeah. let me let me give you an example. Let me give you an example. The, okay, um, that'd be great. Yeah. <clears throat> so. I'll try to get this quick. 
when you look at resumes and job descriptions and try to extract skills information from them, which is what all of the major projects do, um, the problem that you run into is that the most important skills are never documented because everybody knows what they are. Right. So the the example I like to use is that in nursing, a primary determinant of nursing career is how good you are at giving shots. And resumes and job descriptions never cover giving shots because everybody knows that you got to be good at that. Or if you're not good at it, you need to not be in clinics where you have to give shots. And so the nursing profession weeds people along this. Can you give shots well or not? line and it's never covered in any of the skill stuff but it's a super interesting skill because giving shots well is part technical you have to be good at the whole mechanical business of inserting a needle into some other human being but it's also got the soft skill of empathy but it has the soft skill of empathy in a way that a lot of soft skills can work which is if you have too much empathy, you're a bad shot giver. At some point, the shot giver has to hurt the patient. And you try a lot to not hurt them, but really you're sticking them with a needle. It's going to hurt. <laughs> and and so, so you have to have just enough empathy to care about not hurting people, but not so much empathy that it breaks your heart to hurt people. And and a lot of soft skills are like that, that they're sort of a Goldilocks problem where you can have just the right amount of a soft skill uh, to be good at a job, and if you have too much of it, you don't. Um, and none of the stuff about soft skills that I've ever seen really addresses this this way. But the gaming companies that are turning into virtual reality to deliver training across the skills base inside of um, HR tech, that's what they're looking at, and they're rethinking all of the basic stuff that everybody else takes for granted because that's what game companies do. And so I expect real, real innovation to pop out of the gaming industry into our space. I would be a big fan of that for once. My son and I, who is, is big in the gaming industry, would have a, a cross-conversation that I think we could both enjoy greatly. So, uh, yeah, no, it's a it's fascinating to watch what's happening in both those spaces. The other place I was going to mention, which we had been talking a little bit about, where this is also sort of coming to fruition, unfortunately, in, you know, uh, it would be great if it would have come to fruition a little bit earlier, is the epidemiology space, right, where we're talking about um, the movement of viruses, right, and, and what's going on with the coronavirus. And there was some great um, article this week in The Atlantic about sort of the difference between sort of um, cluster effect kind of sort of spreading. I'm, I'm obviously not going to get it as, as, as well as that article, is, so I would recommend reading it. But um, basically the difference between sort of a, a flu that sort of has a general behavioral pattern of movement that you would could sort of historically watch and see and be able to sort of give averages to. And the coronavirus, and part of the reason why we've had such a hard time sort of predicting how it would react and making predictions about its futures because it has this cluster model that um, if you have the right situation, the right um, uh, kind of person, the right kind of environment, right, you have a super spreader. And then, you know, two states over, you know, kind of almost the same situation, but you're missing one or two factors, you're not going to have a super spreader. And so you can't predict what is going to happen in every case. Um, 
And so it was interesting to read that and think about how that kind of modeling is, you know, we, we work so much here, especially in the West, on averages, the average person, the average idea, the average concept, and where you fall on that, or either the top 10% or the bottom 10% of any one grouping of things. We, very, we do not look at the span of, of, of sort of the different scenarios, the different options, and what those factors are. And that's, I think, part of what we're seeing come out of that market as well. So, yeah, good stuff, all of it. Yep, yep. What that means is that um, the companies that do network analysis of organizations are going to start to have a really interesting experience because those are the companies who look at the non-average behavior of employees and try to figure out what that means. So, so I, I would expect that we'll see epidemiology enter into sort of it already is all over the 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 basic math of epidemiology is all over people analytics, um, and it'll start to bubble out so that we have tools for HR to think about managing populations rather than managing individuals. Yeah. It will be cool. interesting. So, Populations versus versus individuals. That that's that that's a conversation to have with with our uh, HR tech companies. Um, interesting. Well, the mailbag was really full this week, uh, which is where some of the conversation we just talked about um, ended up. Um, we're uh, really looking, I think, at, um, at what it is sort of the, the the beginning of what you would consider the fall sort of announcement season, but. Um, a couple of really big things. Um, one is just a short announcement from IRM. Again, you know, I'm on the board for it, just sort of full disclosure. But I really, you know, IRM is an association for HR technologists and and the HR community that's trying to build up their skill sets in the in the technology space. And so for me, it's always sort of a uh, an area that I enjoy sort of working in. And they've um, invested heavily in putting their their workforce solutions uh, journal magazine, which they have published for the last 20 years. Um, always been in a paper-based form. It's had a little bit of an online version, but a little bit hard to use. They have now um, redesigned uh, the entire magazine and put it all online in a way that makes it more searchable and more usable, which I think is always good if you're looking for um, insights and data. But there's also um, been some interesting stuff going on in the business. Um, Phenom acquired a company called MyAlly. Um, we can talk a little bit about that. We, we think after reading through the, the fine print that this is a scheduling, um, automated scheduling tool possibly. Um, Paycor acquires a company called Seven Geese, which is performance management focused. Um, if you don't follow the SMB HR tech space, Paycor is one of the rising stars out of the Cincinnati, Ohio market. Um, AnyVision, which gets to a little bit of some of the stuff that we were talking about in the last couple of episodes, John, is a company that is focused on artificial intelligence enabled visual intelligence software. That's what they call it. But basically, it's authentication of entering into rooms, of logging onto systems, of accessing um, tools, um, they have authentication systems that are touchless. And so there's been a, a $43 million investment in that kind of an organization. So it's worth talking about where that fits in the new HR world. Um, workforce management startup Legion raises $22 million. Not a company I've had a chance to follow, but worth maybe talking about because that's been um, the investment of their Series B, $22 million, comes from Stripe. Um, with participation from Workday Ventures. Um, we also have an update on Workday uh, announcing their own uh, brand new product areas in the area of diversity and inclusion, as well as back to work. And so we can talk a little bit about those. Um, Oracle made some announcements of their own um, current technology updates, um, in, uh, particularly in the area of back to work. 
um, to talk a little bit about what that looks like in their scenario. Vizier had big updates that they launched and talked about in their new um, analytics platform and uh, connecting to integration. Um, and then we had a couple of, I think, you know, less probably noticeable, but often really big stories. Tyler Technologies, which is one of the technology systems um, that many of our government agencies and large um, uh, um, organizations from a state and um, public sector level use, um, had a huge um, ransomware attack, which impacted more than 15,000 local government offices. Um, so that's probably worth mentioning. Um, and then if we get some time, John, I mean, there's a lot of conversations about what people are doing from the COVID-19 perspective. We're now starting to see lawsuits. We're now starting to see companies being held accountable for um, what they asked employees to do over the last several months. We're also seeing employees being fired because of things they're telling their employers and how or not that is coming into play. Um, so probably worth having a little bit of a discussion about all of that as well. So big week. Um, anything in here? that you really want to focus on, though? Oh, let's let you pick today. <laughs> well, why don't we talk a little bit about um, what the, these, um, the purchase of Ally by Phenom. I mean, Phenom has been doing a lot of interesting stuff. You've, you've spent quite a bit of time with them. But, I mean, is the purchase of a, a scheduling tool just an added piece to their um, – already sort of growing mixture of technologies. Does this move them a little bit closer to more of a, a full ATS with this kind of technology? I don't think it moves them towards a full ATS, but it does um, increase their capacity to claim that they automate the drudgery in recruiting. And, and so Phenom is becoming an operation that um, delivers completely individualized experiences for each candidate or applicant inside of the system and then reduces the workload for the recruiter in handling the people who have those things. And that's, that's interesting because it frees recruiters up to do the stuff that really matters, which is making sure that the people that you're talking to um, will make a difference inside of the organization. And so it's a good move. Um, and, Part of what it tells you is that Phenom is having a pretty good recovery from COVID. And they're able to have their heads up in the air and look around and do some acquisition. And uh, that's a good, good indicator that they're going to survive this. Yeah. I, I would agree. So these, the, I, and you and I mentioned this probably just about probably two months ago, right? We said watch for the acquisitions are going to start to come, right? Um, yep. You know, PayQuer's acquisition of seven geese, I think, is, an, is another example of that. I'm, you know, I'm analyzing the early data this year. I can tell you PayQuer's coming out as, as strong as they did last year, probably, um, in our, our research from the um, uh, annual HR system survey. Um, I think they are one of the many sort of SMB um, providers who hit that for sort of that um, SMB organization that realized that they had to really effectively manage their um, uh, workforce from a, from a remote perspective. And so you saw an uptick in some of the um, payroll and core HRMS investments for that SMB market that, that had to quickly shift to a digital environment. Um, and so they're taking a little bit of that extra, it looks like, and investing in spaces that are focused on feedback and 360s and performance issues that 
SMBs have not been traditionally, you know, focused on, but will make them a lot stronger and fits what they've been doing over the last several um, years. Um, about a year and a half ago, they purchased Newton Recruiting, which has now become their Paycor Recruiting. And uh, so they're going to create a whole suite, it looks like, of, of HR technologies beyond the um, HR area. So very similar story, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. Well, this this world that we live in, two hundred person companies can use a tool like this, right? And mm-hmm. and what you get from somebody like Paycor is a freedom from the bulky overheads of customers who are used to dealing with big clients. It's super hard to meet both markets, and so so I do think we'll see explosion of new providers down at the so-called low end of the business. Um, but but that's where most value is created in the economies. And so if you can figure out how to do HR tech in those kinds of settings, you can make a real difference. Yeah, and an impact that can be real powerful um, across, uh, particularly globally, but most of these are focused right now in the U.S., but I think internationally we'll see those spread as well. Um, what about this any vision? Um, this is a $43 million investment in a company that says they are an AI-enabled visual intelligence software um, that focuses on touchless access control and remote authentication um, uh, using sort of facial authentication as well as it looks like it's, it's using some, some, some sort of hand movement sort of reading and stuff. Um, this, this is sort of the, the sci-fi of the future, but, but we're, we're, we're actually heading in a lot of organizations. Do you think this is the purview of HR? Because they particularly mention HR in this announcement and saying that, you know, to bring people back safely, the human resource function is going to have to start looking at these technologies. I know we've talked about this for a while. Do you think this becomes now the HR responsibility? Certainly the responsibility for making sure that the workplace is safe is HR's. Whether or not facial recognition tools make it safer or less safe is probably subject to debate. Um, um, so, so yes, there's a problem making sure that that um, only healthy people get into the conference room if you're going to use conference rooms at all, and it's if only healthy people get into um, certain array of places, and that means you have to monitor the health of those people. The idea that you can use the data that you monitor for health purposes as an underlying principle in access to things, I think that's probably problematic in a lot of markets, right? So you can, you can understand why it would be good to have um, sort of iris driven access to the building, for instance, um, or it turns out your heartbeat is a unique fingerprint pattern. And so you could get in and out of a, a, a um, building based on your heart patterns. Um, but there's all sorts of ethical issues here, right? All sorts of ethical issues here. Can this facial recognition technology actually understand the faces of all people with all different skin tones, or is it just another thing that only looks at pink people and <laughs> can't see other people? Um, yeah. I, th- these, are the, these are the ethical issues that HR has to wrestle with. 
Um, and there are no perfect solutions right now and a lot of opportunity to make mistakes. And so the, env- the decision-making environment means looking at stuff like this and assessing its ethical impacts and then making a decision about using it. And so, and so um, I, my guess is that they're going to be running a little ahead of that curve and people will buy this tool without thinking that hard about it. And and what we have to what we have to do as an industry is is make sure that people understand that that the consequences of your decision can have traumatic impact on your workforce. Yeah. I, you know, I, I'm just sitting here thinking about you know how often would this be just a facility manager's conversation sometimes, right? Um, but the impact on the people in the organization and your comment about whether or not this actually reads um, the Spatial, you know, sort of environment appropriately, um, and does not include biases, or does not include issues. If I have a, um, you know, I'm dealing with a beard this week or not, you know, those kind of things, right? Um, that that is something that that would be up to HR to really test, and so that is really their role, right? To to make sure that anything that's brought into the organization doesn't have an adverse impact touches everyone in the organization. So it's great feedback for everyone. It, it sort of leads into, there's an article I have, you know, that I'd highlighted, but it's way down in the conversation. I didn't think we'd get to it today, but I think it, it, it really ties to this, is that there's being research being done at the various universities on exploring the ways um, people can use voices to diagnose coronavirus infections, dementia, depression, and other factors. Um, a lot of research study being done in this space. They're looking at various um, tools and technologies, and a lot of conversation about how ethical that is, but how powerful it could be. What can you tell by the intonation of the person's voice? It felt a little bit like in the early days where, you know, people used to say they could tell your intelligence by the bumps on your head kind of thing. But I'm I'm hoping or assuming there's more science behind this, but that's what it felt like when I was reading this. I mean, are you seeing that kind of level of expectation that we will get to analysis around things like voice and making some of these decisions as well, John, and some of the work that you're doing with organizations? Well, well what, what people are trying to figure out is how to take the data that we can get or can arrange to get um, and make population-based assessments of the organization, right? There's a lot of, a lot of movement. Humanize is doing interesting stuff with the idea that organizational health is a network health um, measurement, right? And, and, and when you start to look at the complexity of how networks operate inside of, inside of organizations, and you start to think about what it means that the health of those networks is the health of the company. Um, you, you get into some interesting territory. You can tell all sorts of things about people with data um, as long as you understand that it is a correlation. Yeah. Right? So, so if, uh, if Alexa tells you you have COVID, what Alexa is really saying is that there appears to be a correlation with something in your voice to something that other people who have COVID have. So there's a probability that you have COVID. And there's, uh, you know, they, they talk in this, in this um, um, piece about 
being able to identify depression and all sorts of things. And what you really get is you might. There's a, there's a high chance that you might have COVID, but but you can't test for COVID with a voice analysis. You have to test for COVID with a test. And so, yeah. so the promise here is bigger than the reality, I think. And there's also a bit of danger in here in that, um, again, taken too far, like all other analysis, right, that we've been talking about, this could preclude someone from getting into a building. Um, and, and maybe because of the intersection between your age, your race, your um, cultural background, you know, uh, what region of the country you're from, all those things add up to something that sounds similar to that um, thing that they're looking for for someone who has coronavirus, and that limits you from doing something, right? That, that's the big fear in this kind of thing is that that 1% or 2% of outliers are then – um, treated differently in some way, and and can we afford to do that to to manage risk? And that's the conversation, right? Yeah, I think if you um, think about the history of the um, um, optical character recognition stuff, where mm-hmm. um, it as 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 long ago as 1982 or 83. You could get 80% accuracy out of optical character recognition software, but 80% accuracy meant 20 out of 100 characters were wrong, which meant that that the output of OCR was unintelligible at 80%. It wasn't really till you got character recognition up to the 99.999% range of accuracy that it became super useful so you could scan something and get a reasonable facsimile of it out of the scanner. Um, mm-hmm. Same thing is going to apply here. So so what's missing from all of this is what's the error rate. And the error rate on all of this stuff is going to be high. And when you deploy yeah. high error rate stuff, you get things that are unintelligible, just like in OCR. Great analogy, great comparison. I'm having worked in that space early on in, in my career, um, and with banks trying to tell me that that this document they had sent me had most of the information I needed, except for the most important. I get that completely. Yep. <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> well, maybe as a, as a wrap up today, we can talk a little bit about uh, the two big players in the space, both Workday and Oracle, launching I think around the same time updates to their products that have to do with returning to work and um, uh, Workday particularly also launching um, their Vibe product, which is work for uh, diversity and inclusion. Um, you got a chance to sit in on the sessions. I took a look at all the notes and the information um, that they sent to me. Um, it does look that Workday is taking a very thoughtful approach, particularly to the um, diversity and inclusion conversation, focusing on things like intersectionality, um, equity and parity, you know, the, the, the depth, sort of the, the um, stuff that's going on in work, not just the metrics of hiring someone, all things I think we've talked about. But your take on it, I mean, do you think, um, are, are these technologies ready to play a major part in us um, adjusting or doing a better job of achieving social parity inside of our um, organizations or even addressing some of the social injustices that have been happening both inside of our organizations and our systems yet? Well, so 
I personally hate the word intersectionality. It's seven symbols that mean seven syllables that mean nobody is just one thing. Everybody is a combination of things. You you have ethnicity and you have gender, so everybody everybody is some gender and some ethnicity. And so when you go and track uh, diversity as it as it um, expands inside of your organization, one thing you want to think about is not diversity as a single end state, but diversity amongst constituent groups. And they say intersectionality, but it really just means white female, white male, black female, black male. You know, so so it's just pairs of factors. And um, the the workday approach to that is an elaborate um, heat mapping system that allows you to see and manage incremental changes in each of those categories. And and I've, I've never seen anything like it. It was quite thoughtful, but I wonder if that's the right way to manage the problem. And the reason I wonder if it's the right way to manage the problem is that's all based on how people tell you who they are and the actual, you know, there's the, there's the um, regulatory diversity problem, which means you have to have your percentages lined up. You have to have the four fifth percentage to meet the EEOC's requirements. But the actual diversity question in the organization doesn't rest on how you see yourself or how you describe yourself in the self-reported data actual diversity depends on how other people see you, right? Um, they, they, people are not discriminated against because they check the box off. They're discriminated against because people around them think that they fit in the category and would wish they'd check the box off. Does that make sense? It does. And, 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 and I think, you know, my perspective on this, looking both at what Workday is doing and also looking at the, the back-to-work stuff that's going on both them and, and Oracle, but these are these are steps. These are steps that we have to take. To, it, it's sort of like an environment where, um, you know, you don't know what you don't know until you wade into the water, right? And and I think these are better steps than we've seen previously, which have just been these sort of metrics of oh, I've hired so many women or I've hired so many people of color. Uh, these give you a, a better, more full picture. What I think you're talking about is is a different conversation that that has to be the next step in all of these, right? Which is now that I've brought you back to work or now that I'm, I'm looking at these metrics in my organization around um, ethnicity and background and culture, what is my organization sort of – you now have to take the mirror image of that data, right, of, of what the company thinks about an individual and what, and what type of experience they're having and start to compare that, right? And I think – that's the piece that's missing here because it's not just about how someone thinks about you in an organization. It's also what you're experiencing in that in, in their relationship in that culture, right? So um, they, you know, there is a big conversation to be had about changing the dynamics of the underlying system, and you can't do that with a one-way look. You have to do it with a multiple two-way look, right? So, so I think that what you're saying is correct. I guess I would say that you have to take a couple steps to get there. Well, I think that's right, and I, I and I don't want to downplay how extraordinary Workday's offering is. Right? You know, it's sort of my job in the world to go, 
Okay. Yeah, that's really good. Now, why don't you do something else? <laughs> <laughs> well, conventionally, we get it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so. Yeah. So so, and then their I thought their back to work offering, their their return to work offering was just extraordinary, just extraordinary. Um, it helps. What they're doing with both of these things is making complicated problems easy to understand for their clients. And um, the only the only brother I'd have in the return to work stuff is you need to be able to predict when it's time to close. The most expensive mm-hmm. thing that happened this year was we closed all the offices in a hurry. And so lots of things are left undone. Nobody left in an orderly way. Everybody left as if the building was on fire. And um, when you reopen, the thing that you've got to know for sure is there's some meaningful chance that you're going to have to reclose. And mm-hmm. so for my money, getting people operational so that you can reopen is step one. But being able to predict well in advance when you're going to have to shut down so that you can minimize the cost associated with the coming shutdowns um, is is a critical piece here. Yeah, yeah, I I I would agree with that. I think that's that's a big part of it. I, I saw a little bit of it. they were looking at some of their certified partner models to maybe handle some of that stuff. But I agree, um, you you can't go back until you know how you would leave again. Yeah, and. Um, and I saw similar things coming out of the Oracle conversation, right? They're, they have the journeys, they have the videos, they have the, the sort of approach to sort of various, you know, um, check-ins and, and lists. But I, same thing, I don't think there was a lot of conversation about um, how you make the decision when it might be time to, to sort of put the same type of um, leaving or, or uh, move up the, the, the level of risk sort of factors. All of those, I think, are, are good things that these organizations probably need to think a little bit more about. But great to see that they're doing some of the work that they're doing. I think it's really good to see it, it, it coming out and in a way that will help these organizations who are struggling with this conversation. So, boy, like I said, it's a big week, John. We, you know, there's still probably three or four more things we could be talking about, but we are at the end of our, our, our regular half hour. But um, it will be a continuing, I think, um, list of things that we will not get to between now and the end of October and November as we get into this, what is the traditional season of busy time for our business. So. Yep. Okay. Great conversation. Thanks for taking the time to do this again, as usual. It's always a treat. And thanks everybody for listening in. This has been HR Tech Weekly with Stacey Harris and John Sumter. We'll see you back here next week. Bye-bye now. Bye everyone. Thanks.